0: Hello and welcome to the Straits Times webinar, COVID-19, six months on, lessons learned. I'm Salma Kali, Senior Health Correspondent at the Straits Times. First, some administrative matters. To submit a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. We will try to have as many of your questions answered as possible. If you have difficulty viewing the presentation, exit the webinar and try using a different browser. Singapore reported its first case of COVID-19 on January 23rd, exactly six months ago. Since then, a lot has happened, with global infections topping 15 million. More than 630,000 people have died. The three experts with us today bring together different expertise as we look at what we now know of the disease and what the future holds. Professor Tio Ying ying is Dean of the NUS Saucery Hawk School of Public Health. Yik Ying is an epidemiologist, that's someone who studies healthcare trends. He has been following the pandemic right from the start. Mm -hmm. Professor Wee Ing-Yong is the Deputy Director of the NUS's Emerging Infectious Disease Program, and COVID-19 certainly fits that bill. Ing-Yong has also been working on tests and vaccines for the coronavirus. Professor Dale Fisher is a Senior Infectious Disease Expert at the National University Hospital. Dale also chairs the World Health Organization's Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network Steering Committee, and was part of the WHO China team that was in Wuhan earlier this year to study the outbreak. Dale, since we have you on now, could you tell us why are people infectious before they get any symptoms? For most infectious diseases, the viral load is high only when people get sick. Before they get sick, the viral load is low, and so is the risk of them spreading the disease. So why is this one different?
1: I don't really think we know why it's different, but it, it certainly is. And we, we, we knew about this from about, uh, I guess, uh, mid February, uh, that the, the transmission dynamics are heavily affected by the, by the, uh, the, the viral shedding and, and, and at the time. So, so some studies showed that actually the, from the time there were symptoms, the viral load actually started falling which meant that the peak was, was at day zero. Um, it, it's really about, uh, I guess, uh, uh, the relationship between the host, being the human, and the virus. Uh, uh, another example of that is, is, is why people can be asymptomatic at all, yet, yet have the virus, or, or um, indeed people with mild disease can be shedding just as much virus as those with severe disease. So so it's the the host needs to be factored in and but but we don't know the the actual reasons, but it really it really affects our interventions once we know that it can be infectious right at the start
0: so you're saying that when somebody is sick, the person is actually less infectious than before the person got sick
1: yeah i mean for the for the fifteen or twenty percent of people that get very sick, yeah, their viral load can uh can be a lot less than it was earlier because other factors have come into play then such as, such as the, the immune system um, and thrombosis and scarring, the whole infl- inflammatory process.
0: Right, but uh, do we see this happening with other infectious diseases or is it unique to uh, COVID-19?
1: Well, no, certainly uh, some conditions, chicken pox is, is well known for, for being transmissible in the 48 hours beforehand um, uh, probably flu, um, so so it's not uh, it it's allowed it's allowed in the uh, microbiologic world.
0: Right, so it's not that unusual, but it's not a very good uh, good sign for the rest of us. The point is, it makes it
1: really hard to control, which you probably and the rest of the world has noticed that uh, it's very hard. Uh, it's it's common to wake up and. Feel a bit snuffly from the aircon, or or something like that, and you wonder if it's a a flu or not. So so often people aren't sure if they've got symptoms, but but the whole knowledge that's that's been published, even out of Singapore, that uh, that you can you can spread it when you have no symptoms. Uh, that that's a real game changer and makes it really difficult to control. Which is which is why the, the social distancing, even between well people, the mask wearing these things are are critical in the control.
0: Right. Uh, Can we turn to something slightly different? You know, there's now talk of something called long COVID, meaning that the effects of the illness can linger for months. Do we see that in patients here? How common is it? And what are the effects that linger on? And how long do people suffer from them? Is it for a few months or is it a lifetime problem?
1: Well, uh, I'll again say, remember, this is a, a novel coronavirus and we've only been seeing cases in in Singapore since uh, January 23rd. Um, So, and and in fact, in the general community, we've only had, uh, what is it, uh, less than a 1,000 cases. So, so establishing um, the extent of these phenomenon uh, is on the table. It's something that is being looked at in Singapore and obviously elsewhere in the world. Uh, How many... um, so, So, what you're talking about is a sort of a ongoing lingering fatigue and this is definitely anecdotally reported it's actually anecdotally reported in a in a lot of infectious diseases some people getting irritable bowel after a after a gastro for instance and it might take six or 12 months to settle down Um, so uh, there there are uh, uh, um, considerations of, of this lingering fatigue uh, I don't believe it's that common. I think it's probably more common if you've had a serious, severe case. Um, uh, is it forever? Uh, uh, we'll see. We'll see when we get to, when we've known a bit more about it for a few years. I think what's a bigger concern is is people that have had a severe pneumonia. How much of of that is going to turn into uh, long-lasting disease and and scarring and things like that? So. That, that'll that be very important to establish in, in the years to come.
0: You know, I came across a website by a 27-year-old woman. Uh, she's in Britain. And she had a very mild uh, attack of COVID-19. But after that, she's had difficulty breathing, uh, getting tired very uh, easily. So she started a website for other people who are getting lingering uh, effects. And some of the stories there are quite scary because it's not happening to the older people who had severe illness, but to the younger people who had mild illness. Uh, Ing-Yong, have you come across this before?
2: Oh. I, actually, this happens in dengue, right? Um, so we, we've been trying to understand this for, um, you know, uh, as a consequence of some of the viral diseases. Um, and I, As Dale said, the exact reason why some people have this uh, lingering um, and very drawn out uh, cause of uh, illness is, is not known. Um, It could well be that it is all part of the immune response and, and, you know, uh, whether some people are able to resolve the inflammation, some people perhaps aren't so um, fortunate, Um, but we, we haven't still, you know, been able to understand everything about this. So much, much remains to be learned.
0: Uh, what actually surprises me is that generally, I think the older people are the ones who suffer worse uh, with COVID nineteen, and yet uh, they don't seem to be the ones who seem uh, who are getting this lingering disease. So uh, I found that a bit surprising. But is that normal?
2: It, it could be. It could be the the difference between the pre infection state versus the post infection state, right? For so you know maybe if those who are people who are more active uh, in their daily lives, they sense that difference. More acutely than say someone who's you know perhaps in, have, live a more sedentary lifestyle. So it may well be this this impression of you know I'm not I'm not back where I was before I fell sick kind of uh, impression. Right, Dill. Anything to add? Yeah, I think Salma, so. you've just got to
1: uh, be a little bit wary of of anecdotes. Um, this mm-hmm. needs to be collated in a in a scientific way. Uh, it needs to be kind of validated as objectively as possible um, and, uh, a, and yeah so, so it, it is a lot more complicated and, and this is a, a, a place for research really.
0: Well I hope uh, the researchers among you will do something about it because that is quite a scary uh, development. Ying yong talking about research there are a number of vaccines going into human testing now including the one that you are doing at Duke and U.S. Could you tell us what makes a good or a successful vaccine? Is it its effectiveness, the lack of side effects, how long it lasts? You know, what are the criteria for deciding?
2: Right. So ideally, the vaccine simulates everything that the virus would do. So it Mm -hmm. it goes through this, um, you know, the infection process. It's a little bit like, you know, uh, I guess the analogy is you remember much better if the entire scenario plays out before you as a video rather than seeing snapshots of the various events in, in, in stages and then you try to piece everything together. So, so the best vaccine therefore is one, is, is to weakened sars coronavirus 2 or SARS-CoV-2, right? You weaken enough so that it won't cause disease, but not so weak that it will not cause infection. Unfortunately, that's way too difficult to do, right? Because this is a, you know, it's a fairly uh, a serious uh, infection to have. So how do we tweak the virus to weaken it? We don't know enough. So therefore, all the other vaccines that are being developed now are basically making a part, making use of just a part of the virus, predominantly the spike uh, protein. And the spike is like, if you like, it's the key that the virus uses to unlock to get into a cell. Right? So if you can block that, then the virus can't get in, it won't cause infection. So so all the va- various vaccines that are in, in clinical trial now are making use of variations and how we show the immune system the key that the virus uses, so that the immune system will remember and recognize it the next time it sees it.
0: You know, vaccines on the market are not 100% effective, right? Uh, Some are 90%, some are 80%, some are even lower than that. So if a COVID-19 vaccine comes and say if it's uh, 70% effective, would you say it's good enough to be used?
2: Seventy percent effectiveness is actually very good. Uh, you know, the, even even um, a natural infection uh, would not give you hundred percent protection from a second infection, right? So, so I mean, okay, whether COVID gives you lifelong protection or short-lived protection, that's that's something that's being debated. But you know, anecdotally, you, you there's still that tiny minority that you know, despite having uh, had a natural infection in the past, they go on to get it again. It, it, not 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 everyone will have that, but that that's uh, you know um, basically tells you that there's no such thing as hundred percent protection um, so having seventy percent actually is good, but I think the, it, at the end of the day the control of covid isn't going to rely on vaccine it isn't going to rely on drug uh, it isn't going to rely on you know um measures like social distancing alone it's probably a combination of everything that we can throw at this virus um so it, at the end of the day, if we have a 70% efficacious vaccine versus a drug that can prevent the development of severe disease, as well as treatments that can prevent severe complications, I think if you put all of this together, we, we can at least, you know, try and put, put, keep this problem at bay and go back to as much of our normal lives as we can.
0: You know, the advantage of a vaccine is that you keep people from getting sick, so they don't uh, mm. stress out your hospital system. Finding Absolutely. good medication is important because you save lives. But then these people do get sick. They do end up in hospitals occupying beds that other people with other illnesses will need. Absolutely. But I'm going to come back to that 70%. It yeah. means that if 10 people get a vaccine, you know, all of them feel that they're going to be very safe because I got the vaccine, I can go out, and fine. But mm-hmm. what you are saying is three of them actually are not protected at all. So they yes. think they're safe, they go out, but they are not protected.
2: Right. Um, that is exactly right, Salma. Uh, but the way the vaccine works is is it, it isn't just at the individual level. So the person who has, who falls into the 70% and protected against infection, that's great. They won't get it. Right. But actually they go on to protect the others who don't actually develop immunity. And that, and that's this whole concept of herd immunity. And the idea is that it's, it's a chance event. Right. So for instance, if, 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 it, under normal circumstances, and, and COVID looks that way, that one person will pass it on to about two to three people, right? right. And so and, and that's because of the context that we make in our social and daily lives. Um, and that's how physical distancing works. Well, you remove these contacts, and so one person then will pass it on to fewer than one person, the outbreak dies. So now if in a vaccinated population, even at least uh, we, you don't stop the social contacts, one person will come in contact with three people and can potentially pass it on. But actually two of those are already immune. You can actually only pass it on to one. That will have a big impact on reducing the outbreak um, and keeping it well below what the kind of transmission needed uh, for the virus to cause these pandemics.
0: Right. Now, uh, Dale and Yong, usually vaccines work better on younger people they tend not to be as effective in older people and yet COVID-19 is more dangerous for older people. So if you are going to uh, vaccinate say the entire population and it's 70% effective, the 30% who will not be protected are likely to be the older people who are the ones who are more in danger. So does that really make sense? As doctors, what do you people say?
2: If, if, the, if the young people are solidly immune then they would not pass the virus on to the old people, ev- older people, even if they are uh, not, Im- not immune or not vaccinated. Right? And that's how, how um, uh, herd immunity works. Actually, it works so well that that's how uh, we got rid of smallpox. We eradicated smallpox. Right? You just have to vaccinate 80% of the population and the virus will not have the chance of, of causing epidemics. Um, likewise, you know, how we maintain the immunity against the, or pre- how we, we keep this um, uh, measles, mumps, rubella and all that at bay so far uh, is to keep that a high level of our population, but not 100%. So about 95% of the population vaccinated with MMR vaccine. Then the 95% will protect the remaining 5%. And, and that's how it and and, and, and so on and so forth so so I think we don't need to have one hundred percent immunity in Singapore, we just have to have enough uh, to stop the virus from replicating and it looks like given that these this virus spreads from one to three, I suspect that fifty to about seventy five percent efficacy if we vaccinate everyone will be sufficient to it completely eliminate outbreaks in singapore
1: so salma so that that will be important in the strategy for the vaccine once we get vaccine we're not going to suddenly get enough vaccine for the whole country we'll get uh, a certain supply Um, so you might have to discuss do we vaccinate uh, older people or those that are immune suppressed or do we vaccinate those that are looking after them and those that are that that work in a nursing home for instance nearly all the nursing home outbreaks uh, are a result of of a staff introducing it. So so in fact, this is uh, an important discussion in terms of the strategy, because you might think it's, let's just do all the immune suppressed in the old elderly, but that may not be the most rational thing.
0: Yep, so logically we we should vaccinate all the older and uh, people with problems, but you're saying that may not be the ideal way. How, who would you vaccinate Dale? Well,
1: if, if, if it attenuates disease in older people without full protection, that would be an advantage, um, but I, I would certainly like to vaccinate all the, the 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 people that work in a nursing home, for instance. That'd be a be a top priority. But uh, we need to get the vaccine first and, and understand uh, how it works. And 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 uh, the whole issue of vaccinating younger people also brings up the whole immune response and the Kawasaki syndrome side of things as well, which. Uh, which is a whole new world in terms of of safety.
0: Sorry, could you explain that? Are you saying that the vaccine could cause more problems?
1: Not if it's not if it's uh, if it's analysed properly, but if it's if it's rushed, um, this is what concerns me a lot: is that, there, the, that there'll be a a demand to shorten the phase three trials, uh, mm-hmm. and instead of doing it on thirty thousand people, you do it on two thousand people. Uh, rush it through and start start producing it this This would be um, a risk, I would think i don 't know what the others feel
0: right, I think Ye Ying has raised this before to say that if the first available commercial vaccine say protects fifty percent, but there are two or three others that could protect higher numbers, people may still rush out for the fifty percent and then uh, the others will not get fully developed. Is that also a potential worry.
3: I definitely think it is, but I, I'm happy to hear what the other says. Uh, the, the, the issue with having a, a rushed vaccine that it's suboptimal is that the world tends to gravitate towards that as, as the the first solution. And that creates a lot of challenges for the other vaccines that are still undergoing trials and undergoing tests. They may, may end up being much better than the first vaccine with perhaps lesser side effects and higher efficacy but because the world has shifted its t- attention to the first vaccine that is released that is why in, in many parts Dale' concern is exactly right that the first vaccine has to be properly developed with the necessary considerations for both the effectiveness as well as the safety.
0: Right so first may not be best. ing do you agree with that? Well, if you look back at the history of polio vaccine, the first vaccine
2: that came out was the uh, Jonas Salk's uh, inactivated vaccine, which is given by an injection. That that vaccine stops people from getting poliomyelitis, the paralysis, but it doesn't stop people from becoming carriers of polio virus. So it's only the second vaccine that was developed by Albert Sabin that was swallowed uh, and it's a live vaccine that prevented the carriage, right? Um, so. And over time, what happened was that the oral vaccine became more accepted because it was easier to administer and all that. Um, and, and that's how we, we've we successfully controlled polio. But now that we've entered this um, uh, polio elimination phase where most parts of uh, Western Pacific have, have got no more polio transmission, then using a live vaccine becomes a little bit of a problem because this virus can is, is still alive, so it can still cause infection. So now we're switching all, we're all switching back to the inactivated vaccine, um, again, because of uh, public health reasons. So, so I guess a lot of this is all about risk benefit at the point where you need the vaccine, how, what's, the, what's the problem? What's the size of the public health problem? And that shapes how the, the vaccine policy and the choice of the vaccine my my view of the you know the different vaccines and whether the front runner will then slow down the the those that lag behind a little bit. Um, I don't think will be a major problem because of uh, one you know the the size of this problem. if If this was like SARS in two thousand and three, then yeah, I think you know the number of people are the number of people affected, the number of countries affected, it wasn't that large. So maybe you know you have this uh, competition effect. But now, you know, this, this COVID-19 has gone around the world. I mean, everyone, uh, you, know, it, it, you know, on the planet is susceptible to this infection. So so I think that, you know, the front runners would not be able to produce enough to vaccinate everyone. So there will right. always be demand. Demand will outstrip the supply. Um, and also, the, the, you know, with regard to the vaccine safety, I agree that, you know, if you look at it from... Uh, the way we've developed vaccine, the normal timeline from getting from a point where you start working on a vaccine to getting into phase one trial is about three to five years. We're, we're doing three to six months right now, right? And so you know, how, how can we shorten this journey? I think the, the the short answer to that is we understand a lot more about the side effects of vaccine today than we really did in the past. And a lot of this you can now measure by looking at genes, by looking at you know how you respond to vaccines. And that pretty much predicts the safety or shapes the safety profile. So I think whilst we shorten the, the time and there's this concern that you know we're rushing things, but I, I also want to balance things up by saying there are a lot of molecular tools now that weren't available to us even five years ago so that, that we can now use to evaluate how safe vaccines could be.
0: You know something that's come up over the past couple of months is uh, the fear that antibodies do not last very long in, in some patients. So if that happens, uh, it, the same would happen with a vaccine. So does that mean if uh, it's true that the antibodies disappear after a few months, a vaccine really is not much use?
2: Hmm. Um, okay, so th- th- this is a very interesting question, Salma. The, the reason why I think that the... Um, the antibodies don't last in patients who have had uh, COVID-19, especially the mild patients. The reason is because the virus uh, switches off some of our immune response. Makes sense, right? The virus needs to grow it needs to come into our body and it needs to grow and then it needs to get out to get into someone else. If it doesn't do that, it dies, it's dead, right? So in order for it to grow, it needs to switch off some of our immune response. Otherwise our immune response will kill it too fast. So when one of the things that we know now that it's, it, it switches off is the interferon response. And this interferon response is needed to shape our antibody response. So if the virus switches off the, the various genes that our body relies on to develop antibodies, then you can understand why people who have had COVID-19 sometimes don't make very good antibody response. In a vaccine, we don't have that we just put a part of the virus, not the whole virus. So the part the, the part that the virus uses to switch off the interferon response is not in the vaccine. So I think the vaccine has a chance of uh, producing a, a, an immune response or antibody response that is more robust than, than getting wild-type infection. The other answer is that the Antibody is just one arm of the immune response The other arm is the killer cells And I think the killer cells are also very important And that killer cells is pretty long-lived So a colleague of mine, Antonio Bertoletti Looked at SARS patients 17 years after the, they recovered from SARS And we right. still find a lot of killer cells against SARS Not so antibodies,
0: the killer cells Yes Right, yeah. so interferon, that's why there are some hospitals are using it The inhaled version for, for patients, right? To yes. block that,
2: Yes, yes, because that's what the virus switches off, so you supplement it as a form of a drug.
0: Right. Ying, could I turn to you now? Uh, you know, Singapore has had very few community cases uh, over the past few days. Does this mean that it's now pretty safe for us to socialize more, you know, going out, eating out, meeting friends, going to the cinemas or parks or beaches?
3: Well, the, the situation in the community does look promising these days, but I think it's important to remember all the pains that we, the people, the country had to go through to reach this current stage. And the restrictions during the circuit breaker, during phase one, and even some of the restrictions that still exist right now in phase two. So right now, we are allowed to socialize more, and with not more than four other people at each time. We are allowed to eat in hawker eat in, centers, in restaurants, parks and cinemas have opened. Of course, with the safe management measurements put in. So in many ways, yes, we are allowed to socialize more now, but someone you asked the question whether it is safe for us to do so. I like to think that if everyone keeps to the rules, the rules that it's not just Singapore that keeps repeating the World Health Organization and many other public health experts in other countries have always emphasized mask wearing, social distancing, maintaining personal hygiene, and of course now observing the safe management rules that public spaces or workplaces have put in place, it actually will be quite safe. But the problem comes when there are people who tend to be a bit more relaxed about following rules, like in today's news, in Straits Times Today, there were reports about people coming together in groups of 10 or even 18. So in those settings, that is when you're much more likely to encounter someone who is a little bit more uh, adventurous. They may feel a bit unwell, but still think that, well, it's fine for me to go out, to watch a movie with my friends, come together. It's just a sniffle. It's nothing serious. What's the chance I'm infected anyway? And that is exactly when they become less safe. So coming back about all the activities that you mentioned, those activities, whether they are safe or not, fundamentally depends on you, me, everyone, that if we remember that actually when you wear a mask to go outdoors, it is not normal. It is something that we have to do right now because there's an outbreak happening. We are in Doscon Orange. It is a last resort to wear a mask to go out to continue your activities because it means that there is still community transmission of an infectious disease out there. The world is in fact facing an ever-worsening pandemic. So I, I like to come back to the fact that We are allowed to socialize and we are allowed to regain some normalcy in our life now. But the reminder is really, let's not go overboard. Meet up with different groups of four other friends a few times each week. And I myself, for example, will minimize going to places that are indoors, where there are large crowds interacting for an extended time.
0: You know the government says, don't go out unless you really need to. And then on the other hand, it says you can meet four friends for lunch. So I haven't met my friends for a long time. You know, we, we sometimes meet and gather and gossip, etc. And when you're eating, you take your mask off. Right? So that becomes a danger. So then the question is, should I go out? Should I, uh, uh, you know, meet them two or three times a week? Or should I not see them at all and still continue staying indoors, even though it's allowed? So this
3: is the bit where, in fact, I I was just reading some of the questions that were posed. There was also a comment, a question specific to the Singapore tourism board, encouraging us to to participate in local tourism activities as well. I think it all comes back down to how often do we participate in such risk taking adventures or whether we are working within a sphere that we are fairly confident that is going to be fairly safe. For example, I meet up with my parents for a meal, perhaps one, one day every fortnight, every 14 days I, I meet my parents uh, to have a meal together. I don't think that that is a high risk activity, but would I do that while at the same time meeting many different groups of different friends? Every time I interact with more people, you can slowly think of it as you are slowly adding up your risk. And if I know that most of the days, I minimise my activities to coming to work, going shopping for supermarket, grocery shopping. I reduce my risk significantly based on my own activities. And that is when I decide I can still participate, meeting a few colleagues together for lunch because those colleagues are people that you meet regularly. And if you're meeting them for lunch, I don't think that's going to be extremely high risk. It is going to be a difficult compromise. And I think... If all of us continue to just stay at home, clearly the situation will be very well in in check. But I think there will be a strain both on the economy as well as on on our own mental wellness.
0: Right, so you're saying if you meet the same groups of people all the time, it's fine. But if you're meeting different people every day, then you're putting yourself in in danger. Dale, have you been going out? You? Uh,
1: No, I'm, I'm a big fan of working from home. Is <laughs> an infectious I, disease. I've I've been out a couple of times in the last uh, week to, to a restaurant, and um, I, I I thought it was uh, I enjoyed it more than usual. Actually, the the uh, the tables are, are well spaced. There's only four people at a table. Uh, we we ordered on a on an iPad, um, so the only person walking around, unless you had to go to the toilet or something, was uh, was the waiter. So the service was very efficient because there's not so many people. Um, and uh, for restaurants, I think the only way they can keep their numbers up is by getting turnover up. So, so it's a very efficient uh, service. So, um, yeah, I think, I think we can do this safely as, as YY was saying it's, uh, it, it, it's about living with the virus. We can't all lock ourselves at home, but we can do things as safe as possible. Um, and because, it's not, because we're not all in shutdown, there will be the odd case. But with, with good behaviour, we can have a small number of cases, uh, small clusters, no super spreading events, and, and we can go on like this fairly, fairly indefinitely. It's, uh, it's much better than the alternative as everyone finds at party time, oh no, now we've got to lock lockdown again, which is what you're seeing overseas.
0: Right, so everybody should behave and and we can continue like this better. But uh, Ying, you mentioned the STB. You know the travel sector seems to be the worst hit right now because the airlines are not flying as they usually do. We don't have the tourists coming in. Uh, there have already been some retrenchments. Do we see do you expect a lot of that to be happening, A lot of people out of jobs? I think
3: firstly, I'm not an economist, so I, but I will give my my views on this. I think based on the economic figures, it is clear that there are some sectors of the economy, specifically hospitality, tourism-related travel, aviation, that will be the most affected. And uh, Minister Chan Chun-seng yesterday already mentioned this as well, very clearly. I think these sectors remain pretty much at a standstill, but we have to see what why this is happening. Those sectors are currently being affected to allow the rest of society and the rest of the economy to continue functioning. So I think there will be sectors that will be be put on hold and this is where retrenchments will increase. But I think in Singapore, at least there there are all these grants for retraining and other workforce support that will help to reduce this somewhat compared to many other countries at the moment who do not even have any financial support or retraining schemes available. But I think still saying, that Singapore has schemes in place to help people, it's not going to be real comfort to a person who has just lost his or her job. But I think worldwide, we, I, I do see that this problem of retrenchment is going to go up because it is not possible where businesses are put at a standstill and yet people's livelihoods do continue. This issue on inequity It's going to increase significantly because there will be some sectors that are now being forcefully kept shut to allow the rest of the economy to function as per normal. And how do you explain this to people that you have to lose your job so this other group of people can continue working and earning a job? And I think this inequity would be something that countries will have to put in place the necessary safeguards uh, to maintain that social cohesion.
0: Right, thank you very much Ying, for raising that point. I believe some of our audience has been sending in questions. So let's see what they would like to ask you. Right, what are the possible side effects of the vaccine that we should know about? Would the efficacy of a vaccine be affected if the virus mutates? And are we likely to see the first a uh, vaccine become available for use in Singapore?
2: I can take that. <clears throat> so the common side effects of vaccines are, are, are pain, you know, local side you know, um, um, uh, events like pain, swelling and all that, which will go away in a one, you know, a day or so. Then um, sometimes in some people, you, you also get this flu-like illness kind of thing. You get a bit f- fever, feeling a bit tired, a bit of muscle ache perhaps for about a day and then it should go away. Um, all that's because of the immune response, the immune system responding to the vaccine. right? Um, so it's not, not because the vaccine is not safe. It's just a, a side effect of your own immune system. Um, so
0: there's nothing dangerous.
2: Yeah, no. And you'll go away. I mean, at the very most, some people may have to take a, a Panadol or so for a day. And that That's it. It will go away. Uh, no, I
0: can live with a Panadol if it, if it gives yeah. me protection. But yeah. are we likely to see a vaccine in Singapore? How soon can we see that?
2: I think the, you know, at, the, at the soonest, and, and I, I say this as an extreme optimist, uh, at the soonest, it'll be about this time next year. I don't think it can get anything any faster than that. Uh, you know, and, and even then, by this time next year, we'll probably have data that the vaccine works how it's going to be scaled up enough to vaccinate millions to roll it out and actually you know line people up and vaccinate them and all that all that is going to take additional time so it will it may take a while um you know everyone's trying to work as hard as they can and see if we can speed things up but i think it you know even if we can get it by this time next year the whole journey having taken only about a year and a half it's, it's a tremendous um, improvement from the 10, 15 years that it normally takes for a vaccine to get to the market.
0: All right. And Yong, I believe Duke and U.S. is going to start uh, human trials. Yes. Can we volunteer? Can oh, all 1,000 of us here volunteer for your human trial?
2: <laughs> absolutely. Well, the first, the first uh, trial uh, only requires 108 people. So a clinical trial can be split into different phases. The first phase is to ask whether the vaccine is safe, uh, whether the side effects can be well tolerated and whether it produces the, the kind of immune responses that we want to see. So that we don't need a lot of people. Um, we, we just need uh, enough to be able uh, to, to see these uh, events. When we get into phase three, uh, hopefully we we'll, will be the end of this year. That's where we can make a difference because phase three then asks whether this vaccine will work. Um, now, as I said, I, I think we... What is missing in the world right now is is, there is no lab measurement that can tell us that if you have this much antibody or if you have this much killer cells, you will definitely be protected against COVID-19. That information is just not available, but a lot of people are trying to tackle this and it may entirely be possible that by by the end of this year, we will have some inkling what those numbers are so that when we go into phase three trial in Singapore, we can shape it such a way that it not only answers our question whether it works, but it also protects the people, right? So we can, we, we can, we can, we can turn phase three into our advantage. And
0: that's... that's the if advantage. it works, you know, I don't get that. If it works, then it should protect, right?
2: Ah, so, so the hardcore evidence that it works is you take the people who have been vaccinated versus those who didn't get the vaccine, and show that those who got the vaccine had far fewer disease uh, event, uh, cases than those who did not get the vaccine, right? That's the acid test. Um, so what I said earlier about a lab test is like a surrogate marker, but it's entirely possible that we'll get the surrogate marker before we get that acid uh, test result, right? But if, and if we do get that surrogate marker, we can shape the phase three trial in such a way that more people benefit from, the, from being a part of the trial than, than if we hadn't known that. right? So so in other words, there is advantage for Singapore to be a part of a phase three trial. Right.
0: So the clinical trial
2: is not so much just an experiment. I, th- I do this as a guinea pigs. Actually, all that work has been done in the lab. By the time we get into clinical trial, we pretty much, most of the time, we know what we're doing.
0: Well, at least they know they are safe. Yes. Uh, how effective is what they'll find out, but they will be the first among the first to get the vaccine if they're in your trial.
2: For our vaccine, yes. yes.
0: yes. But I wanted to ask Dale, what are the chances of Singapore uh, being able to participate in phase three trials for other vaccines that have been de- uh, developed?
1: Me, just to go back a little bit, I think what Eng Yong is, uh, is explaining is, is important for, for listeners to, to grasp. It, I, I think the the public is being really poorly treated um, in information about vaccines. Uh, what Eng Yong saying is that there's a preclinical phase, there's phase one, two, three trials, then there's got to be post marketing surveillance, uh, and there's going to be a lot of twists and turns in the next six to twelve months. Just like there's been so many twists and turns in the last six months, don't think vaccines aren't going to be the same things, plenty of things will go wrong, but all we're doing is hearing, ah, another vaccine's gone into clinical trials. Now, let me tell you, there's 130 odd vaccine candidates, 24, I think in clinical trials, and three or four have gone through to phase three. But every time anyone's got some news, they know that this will affect their share price, their pre-sales, their funding, And the good news is flooding, and long sufferers of COVID in the public, and all of us, grasp that information and get so excited about a vaccine. And I would really prefer this be unwound a little bit to concentrate more on what we were talking about at the beginning, which is living with the virus and ultimately being helped a lot by a vaccine. But even after the vaccine comes, we're still going to have cases. We're still going to have little clusters. It'll just be a lot easier to manage with a vaccine.
0: Well, a lot easier to manage is better than uh, what's yeah. happening in some I parts of vaccine. the
1: world. I want a vaccine too, but but uh, it seems like everyone's holding their breath until there's a vaccine, and that's uh, uh, just because they get good news every day.
0: Yes, I guess I guess it holds out hope that uh, normal life, you know, can resume. But uh, back to the question. What are the chances of Singapore taking part in uh, vaccine trials for the hundred and something vaccine candidate vaccines?
1: Um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm yeah. sure, sure everyone's open for business. Um, Ang <laughs> Yong and know better than me. Yeah.
2: Right. So, so that, uh, yeah. Vaccine companies will want to go to places where there's a lot of transmission, where there are a lot of cases because to know whether a vaccine works, you, you need these events and uh, being cases. So the more there is, the, sh- the smaller the, the trial needs to be, the faster you get the results. If, if there's not many cases, then you have, you need a lot more people and you need to study over a much longer period. So, so obviously Singapore isn't in that sense, a very ideal place for a vaccine because we, we actually control our disease as King uh, pointed out uh, earlier. Uh, very intensely. Right? Um, but as I said, I think for, for me, you know, the, the getting part into this vaccine uh, trial stage, there's, there's already some benefit by the time we get to that stage. And we know all the attributes of this vaccine in humans that is safe and that it generates the right immune response. By the time we get to phase three trials, I think there's some benefit to the uh, Singapore population. I think the, the other question I wanted to tackle quickly on that slide just now, was this idea of a virus that will mutate out with this vaccine. The chances of that happening is extremely small um, because of the way the vaccine has been designed, right? That the immune response isn't just against one part of the virus. You're you're looking at the entire spike protein. So it's not just the tip of the spike. You're looking at the entire thing. And you're coming in from multiple angles uh, a- and attacking this virus, so you're not putting all our we're not putting all our eggs in one basket, so that if the virus slips through, where well, that's it, where well, you know we have no more defenses. So in in what we're doing, there's a lot of redundancy. That if, if one fails, we have others that will pick it up. So so I am quite confident that mutation is going to affect this uh, vaccine.
0: Right. So we can still remain hopeful for a vaccine, but we should not hold our breath and and think that that's the magic bullet. What other questions do we have? Let's take a look.
1: Maybe something for YY. He's looking a bit lonely there. (laughs) I'm actually learning a lot from Enyong about (laughs) vaccines.
0: All right. This one looks straight up YY, sir. (laughs) Somebody is asking realistically, when can we go on holidays again? Minister Lawrence Wong has said that leisure travel is not likely to happen this year. Is it gonna happen next year? Why, why, what do you think?
3: So this is not very fair. Yong gets all the good news questions and I get to give all the bad news. <laughs> so, the answers, no. Unfortunately, I, I honestly don't think that we will be going for leisure travel uh, this year or even until the early parts of next year. And we have all this discussion around green lanes at the moment. We have a green lane arrangement with China. We have one that's coming up with Malaysia. Uh, At the moment, this green lane discussions have been very much confined to business-related travel or essential travel. Mass market tourism travel, it's still not in the picture yet. And my opinion is that it will not happen for the the rest of this year. It's not going to happen. As much as I want to be able to travel, my kids have been asking whether we can go to different places uh, for fun. Uh, but I don't think that it will be possible. Not because we don't think that we can manage the situation very well in Singapore, but it's it's the converse of when we go out, we end up being exposed to many different factors that are beyond the control of myself. And it could happen on the plane, it could happen when I'm at, at the, uh, a hotel, or I, it could be at the tur- local tourist attractions. So even if we do have an arrangement with a partnering country, perhaps New Zealand, that is controlling the situation very well. We have seen how quickly the situation can change. If we look at what's happening in Hong Kong, what's happening in Australia right now, the situation changed very quickly within a matter of two to four weeks. So realistically, I am I will have to be the person to convey the bad news. you I leave the good news to you on the vaccine. <laughs> uh, when it comes to tourism, mass market tourism, Regrettably, I think we will not be able to travel out of Singapore for uh, the foreseeable future. Uh, right, so
0: if we uh, we want to go overseas over the next few months, we should seriously think about Sentosa.
3: Yeah. Or Pulau Ubin. Pulau Ubin is a fantastic (laughs) place. I just came back from Pulau Ubin and it's a very beautiful place that I strongly recommend. Does either of you, yeah,
1: Dale? I I think. what YY says is is realistically the truth. But I don't think it needs to be that way. Uh, if, if Singapore should be able to get itself into a position where if you're a contact of a case, that you're in quarantine. So you could not leave the country. And, and if we're good at finding our, our contacts, uh, let's say we get to a point where 90% of our cases are already in quarantine, for instance, uh, they were preemptively in quarantine because they were identified then that should give another country the security of knowing that we're not putting any any contacts or high-risk people on a plane so that country should accept it now if for instance we would be comfortable with china because as soon as they get a case they they're very (laughs) very kiasu they lock down the whole area swab everyone within a whatever radius we could be comfortable that China's not going to send any to Singapore. So I think if governments could speak to each other, have arrangements, I don't think we need a 14-day quarantine. I don't think we need testing at the airport. Um, health insurers should be able to offer health insurance because because it's uh, it's a safe transaction. It's not 100%, but it's it's very safe. So I think YY is right because Governments and insurers won't get their act together, but uh, but it need not be that way.
0: So you think it may still it may be safe to go travelling sometime later this year with maybe certain places only.
1: I don't think it'll be feasible because I don't think the the governments will will act this this way because it's it's a risk. Um, I don't think insurers will will health insurance sorry travel insurance will 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 support it. It's, right. it's, a, it's a big area of work, but I, I I think from a health perspective, it can be managed without all the quarantines and testing.
0: Right, okay. So uh, forget your travel plans then. Yeah. Uh, next question, please. <laughs> right, many countries are reporting a resurgence in the number of cases. Health Minister Gun Kim-Yong has said, Singapore must be prepared for a second wave. Do you agree? And if so, when will this happen? And can it be stopped? Second wave in Singapore, who wants you to take that?
3: Well, I can start and then happy for Dale and Eng Yong. <laughs> so second wave in Singapore, I think we will, re- we will work very, very hard to avoid having a second wave. And I think we have seen some of the resurgence in different parts of the world. I mentioned two places earlier on, Hong Kong and Australia. But actually, if we understand what happened in those countries that led to the resurgence, it was actually, there were a number of protocols that were not followed properly. There were a number of people that were let into the country without the necessary quarantine. And I think that in Singapore, I'd like to be a little bit more optimistic here that presently, our rules are still very well kept to the people generally have been very cooperative. If you're on stay home notice, if you you are required to spend 14 days after you return and travel overseas, people generally follow those rules. Social distancing, mask wearing, again, I could see that when I'm out in public, most of the people follow those rules very properly. And if everyone are able to keep to the rules well, we have a very good chance to reach that level that they'll talk about. We may have 10, 20 community cases every day, but most of our activities can resume because the risk that we pose to each other, it's going to be kept to a minimal if we follow our the three the rules we talk about always, mask wearing, personal hygiene, social distancing. And so I, I do think that Singapore right now, we are equally susceptible to a second wave If people start to be a little bit cowboy in their behavior, taking risk unnecessarily. If there are a lot more gatherings of 10, 20 people coming together at homes for parties, for meals, that increases the risk. But generally, if we are able to keep what the government has put in place, especially also safe management practices at the workplaces, the chance of having a second wave can be minimized. And I think this is where we are are aiming for. And I think that even if we do see a resurgence in the community, I, given some of the measures that we put in place, we are in a very good position to figure out where those resurgence are coming from, which are the risky activities. And I suspect if we do see a resurgence, the first option on the table is actually a sectorial shutdown, rather than another comprehensive lockdown, like a circuit breaker. That's how I feel about it. But Dale, Engel, what are your thoughts as well?
0: Wait, what do you mean by a sectorial uh, shutdown?
3: So I I think we have seen how certain gyms or activities have a higher risk because uh, they were not kept to certain protocols were not kept to properly, and those were shut down for a period of time. And I see that happening potentially if we now start to see, for example, it's just an example, uh, that cinemas. There are clusters that are now linked to cinema goers and we see that that could be a place for spreading, then that's where certain, uh, we may need to consider shutting down cinemas. But I I highlight that that is just an example. I wasn't using that as a definitive case. What we have learned very clearly from places like Japan and South Korea are nightlife entertainment spots like clubs, discos, pubs. Those would be very bad idea to open up at this point in time. And I think Singapore at the moment,
2: as far as I know, those places remain shut. Yeah, I can add to that, that, you know, the, in public health is all a lot of, the way to think about it is just all uh, risk benefit, right? For for everything that we we do, the circuit breaker, you know, um, shutting down various, uh, um, uh, shutting down travel or shutting down even business travel and all that, it helps to control disease, but at the same time, it costs society, it costs, you know, Singapore, in, in, Order of billions, as we are now learning, right? So, um, you know, and and so sometimes the, the 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 medicine can be more painful than the disease. So we just have to calibrate that. And I think Dale also alluded to this, right? That yeah, we and you can, as well that you know we can go out now, but just don't overdo it. Uh, so so that what what we're doing is now trying to calibrate and live with the virus. So if if the number of um, cases go up again and we think that the trend is not looking good, then we have to go back to some level of, you know, essence of some of a circuit breaker. Perhaps as you getting pointed out, we don't have to do it across the whole country. We can do it in, in clusters either by, by you know, the, the building or the um, uh, geographic radius in which the clusters are occurring or, you know, through a particular workplace or something like where these contacts are happening. Um, but I think the, the, the other thing that perhaps the um, would be useful for everyone to uh, understand and uh, certainly the public who's who's the, the at the tail end of this to to appreciate is that you know because of this having to adjust to the this risk benefit things change even the control measures change so mm-hmm. so you could ask oh you know actually we didn't have to wear masks at the beginning of this outbreak now we have to wear masks so what if it becomes a day when you know we say okay we can do without masks and then after that coincidentally, second wave happens and you say, okay, that was wrong. I don't think it's a matter of getting it right or wrong. Again, it's, we're trying to adjust to this risk benefit. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes, um, so, so in, in other words, this whole thing is very dynamic, it's very fluid. And, and we, we just have to accept that things will change. It will not be static. Right? What works today may not work tomorrow. Maybe we need more, maybe we need less. But it doesn't mean that what we're doing today is wrong or what we've done in March is wrong, right? So it's just what we're doing at the moment, given how prevalent the disease is and the cost to society.
0: Neil, anything to add to that?
1: I'll try and not repeat what they said because I agreed with it all. Um, the The important thing is it's not about the numbers and that's that's what you learn from a place like Melbourne or Victoria, where they had their numbers right down, but that was because of of lockdown basically. And as soon as the lockdown was over, it's it's really it must be so disappointing. But, you know, they've got, uh, I, I think, uh, 45 nursing homes infected. They've got uh, meatpacking plants infected. All, all the place hospitals, all the places that we know about. And what it shows is that even though their numbers were low and, and it's that's just a, a close to home example, it's obviously uh, many examples around the world that a lockdown uh, and low numbers d- doesn't count. Uh, it, it's when you go back to your your adapted society. And I think Singapore has shown that it can, you, you'll be aware of YY in our publication last, last, last week that uh, really listed a, a number of points that Singapore really ticks all the boxes, that we do have that strong public health response. We do have good, Community behaviour, with a little bit of help from uh, from uh, from uh, people people in the crowd. That uh, what do they call the uh, SG Ambassador. ambassadors?
0: ambassadors. Yes. <laughs> um,
1: uh, which I tell you, it's easy to come across them. They're they're in every hawker stall and things. So and and that's 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 very important just to keep people on track. And uh, but but yeah, when when you start changing the community behaviors by loosening restrictions or whatever that's when you take the risk and and I agree um, Singapore is it likely to make a decision like open all the nightclubs and you can stay up all night uh, I, I think I, I hope they don't um, could there be a super spreader event well um, I do worry about if fully opening the Hawker stalls and then seeing a whole uh, residential block uh, uh, get infected like uh, like we've seen elsewhere. I think that's a risk as Singapore is a very dense country. So I hope we don't push the keep pushing the borders until we uh, uh, and until we do have a second wave. I, I hope we can can temper that, and I think we will. I think we're in one of the safest places. Actually,
0: yeah. you know, when you talk about taking uh, measures, wearing masks, safe distancing, in most countries in the world, safe distancing means uh, two metres apart. In Singapore, it's one meter apart. Uh, why is that? And is one meter good enough? I, I don't
2: think there's a magic distance that you know, uh, one or two meters beyond which we're definitely going to be safe. I, I think at, it, at the end of the day, it's all about practicality. It, you know, it, the, the distance, the physical distance, is one thing. The mask wearing is another thing. You know, hand, good hand hygiene is is, is, is a third thing. Um, so, so I think each of these things all add up and, and they help to really, um, you know, uh, e- enable this effectiveness in control measure. I don't think that any one of its own will work.
1: So, and certainly, um, uh, I'll, I'll share a couple of jokes. My sister tells me she's standing in a shop in Australia. And so she stands a metre or two apart from the next person. And then someone comes and stands in between them. <laughs> a friend of mine in Geneva, waiting to catch a bus stands back so someone else goes and stands in front of him so uh so i i think i think it just makes sense to wear a mask because saying if you can't socially distance you know i'd probably like to see them get taken off when you're walking through a park or something like that i think uh i think that's uh that would be okay but i i think if you're in any sort of built-up area you just uh you just have to wear a mask
0: so just behave sensibly. Let's see what else people are asking. Dormitory, dormitory residents have been isolated and quarantined for several months already. Why are we still reporting several hundred COVID-19 cases from the dorms every day? Dale, I think you'll have to take this one.
1: Oh, is this when I do this and freeze?
0: Uh, <laughs> you know, because they say the incubation period is about uh, two weeks. So if I have a double incubation period, it's one month. Now it's several months and the dorms are still reporting cases. Why is that so?
1: The first cases were were, were early April. It, it's, it's a question of scale um, when, when you've got... So there's over a million workers altogether, but let's talk about the the 300,000 in the, in the right. 43 purpose-built dormitories. They're, ideally, you would be taking out the positive cases and putting them in a, in a central supervised um, community care facility for, for younger people and older people or sicker people can go to hospital. That took a little while to ramp up because we didn't have that capacity. So that probably took us time before we could actually manage all the positive patients. But in the meantime, there was uh, still some spread happening. And, and, and normally also you would take every contact and put them in a single room for two weeks to see if they manifest disease. That's what we tell the rest of the community. But with the the density that the the, the foreign workers live with, um, there there was no capacity to to isolate everybody. So, so it's been extremely challenging and complicated to work through 43 dormitories that that had des- and 300,000 men in in the way of it. So. So, the strategy was um very novel A lot of it was around um taking out the older people or those with comorbidities and 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 making them safe and Part of this is why we've seen forty eight thousand i think cases now and and twenty seven deaths It's absolutely staggering uh the rest of the world's going what, what how did you do that um and and that was was part of the reason I'm sure there would have been a lot more problems had had uh, older people gotten infected so so there is still some transmission obviously happening but but a lot of the dorms out of a combination of serology and and uh, and, and pcr testing uh, we're now clearing but but it's 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 been slow um, I think there's about of all the dormitories including the factory converted dorms and things there's about uh, Nine hundred of them are now i think are, are clear about a quarter of a million men are, are clear and uh and uh and there's a there's, it should all be over within in weeks maybe a month but uh but uh, it 's been a marathon that w- we didn 't want to have um, and and every effort's being taken to make sure that uh we're not uh sending infected men out and creating new protocols to uh, to make sure those that didn't get infected, there's no new clusters. Um, There's even new designs for for dormitories that are being built uh, so that we don't have this again.
0: Right, so uh, we knew what we should do, but we did not have the capacity to do it. However, what we did right was to remove the people who were older and uh, at higher risk. And because of that, Dale, you are saying, we have been able to keep mortality down.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a huge part, but also every, every dormitory was, was assigned um, a medical team, whether it be from hospitals or polyclinics, and they were there every day, seven days a week. Um, so people could report sick, whether it was for, for, their, uh, for, for respiratory illness or whether it was for, for other illnesses. Um, so you could go to some of these dorms and there's just always uh, doctors, nurses, allied health. Uh, volunteers, community volunteers um, so yeah the, there was a lot of attention and and the a strong priority on 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 not dying more than transmission i say
0: right now we 've got seventy nine eighty questions on the queue, so I think we have to go to the next one uh, see how much time we can answer any, all the questions there are any, yes, no ones <laughs> Right, airborne transmission of COVID nineteen. So they want your view on airborne transmission in the community and how can we mitigate it? Uh, what can we do in aircon buildings, for example, if the virus is uh, airborne? So this is for Young and Dale, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't mind taking it. It's um, it's um, th- there's been a lot of talk about this. There's definitely two schools of thought. Um, I'm in the more popular school of thought that I- airborne transmission uh, is uh, not a major driver of this. Uh, I think it can aerosolize. We know it can aerosolize if you do aerosol generating procedures such as intubating or dental work, things like that. Um, that can make aerosols. A- aerosols are, are defined as, as um, particles that are less than five uh, microns in size, so five millionths uh, of a, of a, of a metre. Um, so um, they can, in theory, suspend, drift, and there's a few conditions that do that. Um, uh, chickenpox, um, measles, these have got uh, r naught's reproductive numbers of, of over 10, uh, 12, 15, 18 on different reports. Um, and that's what you see with, with airborne conditions, even TB is airborne. And that's one of the top three infectious disease killers, uh, with, you know, a third of the world probably exposed. So, so we don't see that with COVID. We don't see, um, uh, this sort of level of, of transmission. Now it, it, it's never been cultured in a droplet, although PCR fragments have been found. There's a preprint that came out yesterday suggesting that it uh, that they might have uh, cultured it, but that's still un- under scrutiny. And even that paper suggests that it's it's very very few, uh, and, and probably below an inoculating dose uh, and enough virus to cause to cause disease. So um, I think it can. I think it's probably very uncommon, and we it, we shouldn't be obsessed about it in our, um, in our strategies in terms of mask wearing and social distancing.
2: Right. I, I fully agree with uh, Dale. I, I, don't, I, I think this is a, it's certainly possible that it can be transmitted by the aerosol route. But the likelihood of that happening in real life, I think it's very small as well. I think that Dale brought up this point about this inoculate, uh, inoculum. Uh, what it means is that you need a minimum number of viruses uh, to get into the body before a, a disease uh, or at least an infection can happen and, and then after that um, a disease can ensue. Uh, if, you, if you fall below, if there's not enough virus and the number of viruses, b- viral particles to get into the airway is lower than that, it's not going hap- to happen. Nothing's going to happen. So that's why measles and, and chickenpox are so uh, it can be transmitted by, by aerosol because you need so few particles and you'll still get disease. Whereas I think for for SARS-CoV-2, you, you need, you know, it, it doesn't happen in the same kind of, uh, you know, uh, um, that small n- number of viral particle in inoculum as would, um, as measles and chickenpox. And so therefore, when you, even if you ha- do have a, you know, a COVID-19 patient and is coughing in, a, in, a, say in an office building, is expelling virus into the aerosol, if the virus were to be sucked into the air conditioning system, goes through the, sit- this, uh, the filters and all that come out, this, this thing, you know, the, the, the entire process would have diluted the virus so much that whoever then manages to inhale it would not have enough particles to cause the infection. So the, the way virus spreads through the air vent and all that, it, it's, it's a nice theoretical thing, but in real life, it seldom happens that way.
0: Right. So therefore, actually, plane travel is also quite safe. Uh, in a closed environment?
2: I think even for tuberculosis, I mean, those those events that were, there was transmission in, in the plane, uh, you know, the number of people that actually do catch the, the bacteria from a TB patient is actually very small, right? And and you cannot even then, you cannot ex- exclude the possibility that the transmission actually didn't happen, say, in the bathroom or something, you know, one, the, the uh-huh the patient went to the bathroom followed by the pa- other passengers and that's where the transmission actually occurred through contact rather than through the aerosol route. So, so I think, you know, like I said, the, the prevention of COVID is, is a, you know, it's a number of things that we use in concurrently, mask wearing, social dist- physical distancing, you know, um, good hand hygiene, avoiding close contacts and all that and all, all those things all add up to, to reduce the risk of transmission.
0: Right. So we need not worry if you're working in an air-conditioned building. It's quite safe. Next question, please. Ah, do you think more effective public ed, uh, education campaign is necessary? More in-your-face graphic images of droplets from breathing, talking, shouting, or when COVID-19 patient looks like uh, problems? Well, do, we, do we need to educate the public more on what to do and what not to do? Actually, uh, why, why? Yes.
3: My, my frank opinion is that given what we have gone through for the past six months, uh, it will be very difficult for people not to realise what are the, the right behaviour. And, and I suppose the public education here, we have been doing that every day. If you have newspapers, if you subscribe to the Straits Times, which I hope all the audience will will have, uh, on the front page, you have daily reminders of what to do, whether you're an elderly, whether you're a person going to work, the the features, the, the symptoms to look out for. So I think the education side is actually there. But I suspect over time, People, there's this degree of fatigue that will set in, inevitably. Even in the best society, there will be a degree of fatigue if people have to stay indoors, people have to keep wearing masks, they have to maintain a certain degree of distancing between their friends, their colleagues as well. And I see that trying to address some of these issues around fatigue and around the behaviour will be relevant. And perhaps that's where the question comes in, on what do we next do next to address this degree of fatigue? And do we run a risk if now there are people, increasing number of people deciding that, well, I'm not going to wear my mask or I'm going to be, I will take more risk, I will have more social gatherings. And I see that, that to be a very pertinent issue. And this is where the constant reminder that the situation is not normal. What we are facing right now is not normal. The fact that we are having this discussion right now <laughs> instead of being in a studio, it's not normal. And I think all these are daily and regular reminders to people that it is a painful experience that we are going through now, not being able to go overseas for holidays, having to maintain a degree of distance, wearing a mask. The bit about wearing a mask, I know many people are quite upset about it, uh, particularly if they have to wear a mask immediately after exercise. So those are reminders that we are not going through a normal time. So I I don't think that it is to do with public education, per se, but more to start to address some of the pain points that individuals or collective, the, the masses are feeling with respect to the fatigue. It could be even mental fatigue around this this constant pressure that something is happening out there. If I, I, I do this, am I exposing myself to higher risk? And am I participating in a high risk activity? Most people will not think that going sh- supermarket shopping is a high risk activity. But right now, there's all these reminders, including from, from all of us to say that, well, going supermarket is something that is potentially risky. You have to do your safe management, safe entry, and you have to wear a mask and so on. And I think that over time does grind down a person's resilience.
0: Right, so it's not lack of knowledge, it's the fatigue that we need to fight. And after a while, people tend to let go. Dale, yes.
1: I've got a, yeah, slightly different take, although not completely different. <laughs> I agree completely with fatigue, but, but this whole engagement of the community and education is, has to be strategic and, and never underestimated. Uh, and it's obviously why we're all here now, because we, we believe in the importance of it. Because the community has a lot of questions, and we're here because we believe we can give clear, honest answers. And questions will keep coming up, and that's how you maintain trust and confidence, and therefore behaviour. But you also have to be doing it in a number of different ways, because um, doing it on you know how do you approach the younger people the Older people that might only speak a dialect. How do you uh, uh, approach, um, how do you message to prisoners? Uh, everyone is in a is in a different setting and everyone needs their own special issues addressed. So so I think it actually is a lot of work. I think fatigue is, is a major concern, but I don't think we should ever forget about the importance of keeping information up with people so that they get the right uh, understanding. And on right, this point, so
3: on, yep. maybe I could just add on Dale has a series of fantastic cartoons, comics uh, I've seen them Very, yeah. very educational And it, it translates very important messages In a very simple way for people to understand So strongly encourage uh, the public To have a look at the, the comics that Dale is featured in
1: The COVID Chronicles
0: <laughs> Yes, I know we've uh, featured them in the Straits Times as well You know, I, I do look out for them Anyway, on the subject of fatigue, before our audience get too fatigued with our uh, session, uh, I think we need to uh, close it soon. We will have time only for one last question. Uh, And the question is, how will the resurgence in the number of cases in other countries impact on the reopening uh, local, regional and global economies? Uh, Are we looking towards a long time uh, recession? Are we talking about uh, the economy being bad for the next 12 months, maybe, or more? Anybody has a crystal ball? Who, Anyone who wants to take a, a, an educated guess on this?
2: None of us are economists, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, so,
0: okay, in that case, yeah. we will leave that question to the economists and we will have to uh, close today's session. I've, uh, I personally found it very interesting. We've ranged from travel to vaccines. So uh, for people who may have missed part of the show, this show will be available for viewing on The Straits Times Facebook and YouTube from 7 p.m. tonight. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. I'm Salma Khalik, Senior Health Correspondent The Straits Times. Goodbye and keep safe.